It has been one year since the Public Health Insight launched our podcast in March of 2020, and we're excited to celebrate this incredible milestone with our followers in 1,500 cities in more than 100 countries who have supported us along the way. We couldn't have done it without you. My name is Gordon, Executive Director of the Public Health Insight, and your host for this episode, and I will use this opportunity to take you on a walk down memory lane as I recap on some of our favorite moments from our most popular guests in 2020. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. In episode 6, released on April 10, 2020, Dr. Thane, Deputy Head of the General Practice Department in Cayman Islands, joined us to discuss some of the challenges for the healthcare system during the initial stages of the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the psychological impacts on healthcare workers. In this clip, we asked him about COVID-19's disproportionate impact on long-term care homes, the consequences of the healthcare capacity being overrun, and he also stood out for his simple but eloquent answer when asked about the competing interests of health and the economy. I think we've been caught napping. And um, for that, I, I will probably ascribe some blame to our neighbors in North America. The entire hemisphere takes its cue from what happens usually in the U.S. If the U.S. is vigilant about something, we tend to pay attention to it. If they're not, um, then the urgency seems to be a little bit less. So I think the stance that was taken initially in dealing with it from the point of view of the United States sort of set the tone for the rest of um, the countries in the region. And so we're playing catch up. Some of us are catching up a little bit better than others, but by and large, we're playing catch up. Right. Uh, speaking to that, with, with the lack of life-saving healthcare resources, as like many preventable deaths are occurring simply because there's not enough space. So from your experience, I'm wondering what toll does it uh, does this take on decision makers in healthcare? Oh, it's a it's a huge toll. Um, remember, we've been trained, we've been swore to our oath to do no harm. Also, we try our best to see that no harm is done. When you have patients of the volume that they're coming in, and um, I'm speaking of what we see going on globally. Uh, it's difficult as someone who tend to life to see so much death right. happening around you and it wears you down yeah. right. it does wear you down I think a lot of the responses um, coming globally or especially in the US and Canada they're very much weighing a couple of options for example they want to make sure the health of the population is optimal and making sure everyone's healthy and protected but at the same time they're also concerned about the economy so how what's your view on that how do you balance that appropriately uh, <sighs> you can resurrect an economy you can't resurrect a person in episode 9 released on april 21st 2020 Dr. Sajad Fazil, a public health researcher, joined us to talk about the rapid propagation of misinformation on the internet and on social media and how it can impede the progress of important public health measures. In this clip, we talk about the how, what, and whys of misinformation and social media as both the problem and the solution. 
there's two sets of things there's one that the spread of misinformation is deliberately uh, spread by people who gain from it um, mm. in one way or the other and then there's the other aspect which is the public and uh, and uh, somebody else who just uh, forwards is received or just shares the post that somebody sent to him or tagged him on and i think uh, one of the ways um to actually stop the spread of misinformation and one of the messages that we need to get out to the public is do not forward as received do not share um the post that you get uh, have a look at it read it um fact check it against websites um and then share it um if it's accurate and if it's not accurate uh, just delete it um and if you don't mind i'd like to share this uh, so there's a study been done by dr gordon pennycook um who is uh, studying misinformation and looks at the psychology aspect of it um and uh, he coined and there's this word that they use it's called cognitive miser um these are people who have the intelligence um to differentiate between accurate and inaccurate information but they just uh, share it um there was a study that found that uh, uh, that looked at fake news and stuff and 25% of the people in that study uh knew uh, thought that the fake news was true but 35% of the people shared it which means 10% more people shared it despite knowing that maybe this is not true um and you see different studies looking at a variety of things for example if you share something um any any statement and then you have an image attached next to it so if you see something about covid-19 and you have a picture of the virus people are more likely to think that that information is true Mm. Similarly um if you if you repeat statements within uh within an article it's more likely that somebody thinks it's going to be true so there are these uh, uh things that people who propel misinformation use um uh, and I think we all have to be careful and stop and think and say wait a minute is this true am i sharing something because it's true oftentimes people when they share something they say oh this is going to help somebody or this is going to benefit somebody well it might not benefit him and it really might cause detriment to him if what you're sharing uh, uh, is false some research studies have shown that there are many cases where false information is spread more quickly than the truth on social media platforms and we also know that a lot of public health measures use social media platforms as a means to reach the public which leads me to the question is social media our friend our enemy or somewhere in the between like a frenemy yeah <laughs> great question <laughs> i think i'd go with frenemy <laughs> and i'll tell you why uh, the way i look at uh, uh, social media it's a tool it's a tool um that can be used in the right way or the wrong way you can use a car to take your friends out uh, to the mountains um well not in this time but mm. yeah <laughs> uh, and you can use a car to run over people right right um and we know of both instances in canada so um i think it's a tool just like any other in how you use it yes it's true that misinformation spreads faster than accurate information um and i think uh, and you have come to a very important point that i wanted to discuss today it is how can we improve health communication i mean when i look at things and i say wait a minute doesn't this show that there is a gap um in the way we communicate to the public doesn't this show that we need to um improve our game so to speak as public health professionals when we um educate the public how many mm-hmm. public health units in canada have a social media account on instagram how many mm-hmm. public health units use memes why can't we use memes today i made a nice mm-hmm. meme about covid-19 misinformation <laughs> and and i mean <laughs> the depart uh, the state of ohio their department of health 
Have you seen the 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 video they shared about social distancing? No, we no. haven't. Yeah, so so I'll tell you. I'll just describe it. Um, it's a it's a room. Uh, the tiles are black in the room. Um, there is mouse traps everywhere. I'm trying to try to make it descriptive so you can imagine it. Um, <laughs> there is ping pong balls on the mouse traps, and the mouse traps and ping pong balls are kept quite uh, which are kept quite close together. All the mouse traps. And then somebody throws a ping pong ball, and it hits one of the mouse traps, which makes all which makes that ping pong ball go all over the place, and mm. it continues. Mm. Right, mm-hmm. and then they do the same thing, except this time the mouse traps with ping pong balls are kept separately. And when the guy throws this one ping pong ball, it goes in between all those mouse traps. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. they just say social distancing works. Yeah, beautiful ah. message. It went right. viral on social media. Right. Now my concept, my personal philosophy is let us make public health viral. Why not? Why not? Why can't we collaborate with celebrities? Um, who are ready to collaborate with public health uh, and help spread the message? Um, why can't we work with uh, media companies um, that do advertising for some of the biggest companies like Coca-Cola, PepsiCo? I mean, some of these companies, if you see their ads, they always go viral. It's because they work with uh, uh, marketing agencies that have a pulse on, with the public, right? They know what's mm-hmm. trending, they know what's going on. Um, I don't think it's it's effective anymore to put up a billboard and say smoking kills. It's it, it it's probably not as effective to say let's say the younger demographic than having a meme about it or having a a, a Twitter post about it or an Instagram uh, IGTV video. So I think the way we look at health communication um, is important. In episode 11, released on May 1st, 2020, Jessica Schill, a policy advisor with Beef Farmers of Ontario at the time. Join us to talk about how the pandemic has impacted food security, food production, and how it affects our health. In this clip, we ask her about how technology can be used to support the agricultural industry and the current level of uptake with workers in the sector. In terms of automation and tech in agriculture and even in the food supply chain in general, um, I know by primary producers, it's 100% welcome all the time. They love the idea of new technology because ultimately it affects them to, it helps them to be more efficient in their production. Um, which is the goal, right? To be more efficient and produce better quality food all the time. And they want to make sure that they're producing the highest quality of food for our consumers. So um, actually uh, talking about that, there is a lot of technological advances that have already taken place or are already in the process of of happening, especially in Canadian and US agriculture. Um, So for example, our, our planters, our corn planters, um, they're automated. So, uh, for example, instead of planting, over planting a row or something like that, the planter knows how many rows to plant and it will shut off its planters if it gets too close to another row. And the producer can decide how far apart he wants things so that he can make sure he's fitting the ultimate number of plants in that field to grow the best yielding crop. So basically they're always using technological advances like that. Um, Another one being uh, in our sprayers. So um, a lot of uh, sprayers, they're self-propelled now, so they can actually shut off the sprayer tips um, as they're getting close to the edge of the field or if it's going over a spot that it's already sprayed, it'll shut off the tips so that um, they're not over spraying or or anything like that, which is really cool because, you know, they're not wasting anything and they're doing the best they can for the crop and the soil health, which is really awesome. Um, And then another, kind of automation is now they have GPS software that can connect you to at home. So for example, a 
producers out in the field planting, he can see um, his maps can be downloaded to his phone or his MacBook at home and he can see where he's planted and what's been planted there and, and really take a good look at things from home. And then that system will also allow the parts servicers to come over into their tractor and service the equipment not like remotely. So they don't have to go into the dealer, take the tractor in. The, it can all happen in the field while they're still working, which is really helpful to continue you know, producing and, and being efficient in time and not having to take an entire day to go, mm -hmm. to go into town to get your parts and stuff. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of advances. And with those advances is also coming, um, there's gonna be a lot more jobs in agriculture as well um, and in food supply because they're gonna need people to troubleshoot and IT and, and tech to support these, these advances. Um, and we are seeing that shift now with a lot of people studying different agricultural tech products and, and being in that involved in that that way. So um, it's definitely a, a sector, agriculture is a sector where there's lots of room for growth with tech and advances, um, but it's definitely started. The ball's already rolling, which is really cool. In episode 22, released on July 14, 2020, Rose Marcellin, a public health researcher in the United States, Join us to talk about the benefits of integrating cultural competency in the healthcare system. In this clip, Rose talks about the difficulties racial and ethnic minorities experience when navigating healthcare services and the need to address language as a barrier. Cultural competence is the ability of providers and organizations to effectively deliver healthcare services that meet the social, cultural, and linguistic needs of patients. And when I think about that definition, I, I know often, you know, when we think about cultural competence, you just think about the social and the cultural piece. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we sometimes neglect the linguistic mm -hmm. needs of patients as well. Um, and so I was kind of reminded a little bit, um, you know, a couple years ago, my mom, so I'm Haitian, she's Haitian, she speaks Creole, and, you know, she speaks English, but um, the proficiency is not always there um, and so she was going through some medical issues and I was here and I said I'll go with her um, just because I know she while she might understand the gist of the conversation um, sometimes the nuances that goes into your medical appointments might it might get lost in translation for her um, so I was able to go with her um, just to make sure that when I knew what she was supposed to be doing, right? Um, and then also just to have, you know, someone there, if she had questions that I can kind of help make sure she was able to articulate what she wanted asked. Um, and I think about what that experience must be like for her, where, you know, she's at a point where she knows she needs to go to the doctor, but there's this kind of concern in the back of her head that she might not understand fully what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, so it goes back to this linguistic needs of patients and how do we incorporate that in healthcare settings? You know, I think the, the ideal, of course, would be that every provider or every facility will have um, interpreters and things like that, but we know that's not the case. So how do our healthcare systems, you know, better prepare and engage with their patients that might have social and cultural differences um, from the norm. And I'm using air quotes around the norm, but mm -hmm. um, you know what I'm saying there. Yeah, and you know, that's a good point also, Rose, because linguistically, it's very important in terms of, you know, someone can go to the doctor, get treatment or get medications if they're sick 
and if they're able to afford it because of healthcare or prescription coverage, the next place they're going to go to is the pharmacy. So when most pharmacies are printing labels in English and predominantly have pharmacists who maybe only speak one language, which is English, then it extends beyond the immediate healthcare primary care setting to other uh, peripheral and supportive parts of the healthcare system. Because if this person sees a doctor, gets the appropriate medication, then it's it's another thing in terms of um, disease management now with the pharmacy, right? Because if they are not able to comprehend the instructions with the linguistic piece that you mentioned, then they're not going to be able to keep their condition under control. And then this is going to put even more pressure on the healthcare system when that person is readmitted. So I wanted to emphasize that as well. Yeah, that 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 linguistic piece, I think, um, is so often neglected. I think sometimes when we are looking at um, whether it's just health messaging or sharing health information, mm. um, even going beyond the linguistic to include uh, like plain language um, in how we disseminate health information. Um, but I'll take it back to the linguistic piece. Just for example, I know in some you know, urban and culturally diverse areas that you will find um, health information or even the pharmacist labels on your prescriptions or the little information sheet will have multiple languages on there. Um, So I know in Miami, for example, where I was raised, like I know when my mom would go to the doctor, she would get the information sheet oftentimes in Haitian Creole. Now she lives in Gainesville, Florida, and that's not happening up here. Um, but there, there are places that are definitely understanding of, you know, who their populations are and who, and who they serve and they do a better job um, of meeting some of those needs. In episode 24, released on July 28, 2020, Linda Holbrook, a public health researcher, joined us to talk about the social determinants of health and why they must be considered in order to improve the long-term health and well-being for individuals and populations. In this clip, Linda challenges the notion that race itself should be considered a social determinant of health. This take was such a good one, we eventually invited her to be a regular on the show. For me, when I think of the social determinants of health, I like to first start with how health has normally been conceptualized, kind of the traditional or historical definition where it was more so just a biological thing or genetics so it's like there's something wrong with your body you take this medication and then you're you're fixed your problem is solved but the social determinants offers a broader lens and these are factors that are beyond just genetics and biology it's more in regards to the social and economic factors so things like your environment um, your education level income even things like racism all those can impact your health and if you want to talk about the causes of the causes and this may be more of a semantics issue but i think Mm -hmm. that to say race is the determinant of health is incorrect and Mm. you know so many you know the canadian public health agency and others will Mm. say that race is the determinant of health but to to be black or latino or asian like that itself is not Mm. a risk or protective factor i I would say it's like racism is the determinant Mm. of health it's Mm. that Mm. structure of inequity and hierarchy that our society has created is the determinant of health and so sometimes it gets tricky because we'll see statistics that say you know indigenous people are this 
and black people are this and these groups have higher rates of this disease than that but we don't say why and so you it kind of creates that narrative of oh if i see somebody from this ethnicity i'm just gonna think they're more it like it reinforces those biases Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something as a public health community we could try mm-hmm. to work towards instead of pathologizing a race we right. we talk more about the system of inequity. In episode 32 released on September 22, 2020, Nicole Vick, a public health advocate, TEDx speaker, and author of the book titled Pushing Through: Finding the Light in Every Lesson, joins a podcast to highlight education as an important social determinant of health. In this clip, she shares her lived experience with a lack of diversity in post-secondary institutions. I'll talk a little bit about my experience which was so so long ago over 20 years ago is is you know it's okay. <laughs> But I think it will actually make a lot of sense because I'm starting to see now a lot of colleges and universities sort of kind of come to terms with their own historical past and some of the things that they've done to um you know either on purpose or on accident um sort of create this difference in experience for black students and other students of color and everyone else. So I walked onto the campus of the University of Southern California as a freshman um back in 1996. Um I used to live probably 5 minutes away from campus my entire life. I grew up around USC. We went grocery shop- shopping across the street from USC. So USC was very close but it was yet far away. It felt far, unattainable mm. because I didn't ever see anybody that looked like me on that campus. um as close as i was to it in my entire life growing up somehow you know and i always say somehow but no the reality is i did work hard um applied like everybody else i got into into school right yay um but i was i, I felt out of place i felt uh unprepared i felt like this school is not built for me it is not intended for me I know the school is what was built in like 1880 or something like that. And and yeah, that in back then were they thinking about this black girl from South Central walking on in this campus? No. So the school it, by its nature was not intended for someone like me. Add to that I was pregnant. I was a teen mom um trying to navigate college. And so it was really hard. I there were mm. things like the Black Student Union and things that and they offered support. Um but you walk through campus the people the names on the buildings and the the photos and statues no they're not black folks not saying they should they right, should be right. but it just didn't feel right, right. like there was diversity and right. so you didn't identify right. with the place as much right and so fast forward to 20 years later starting to see the university and again I'm picking on USC because that's my experience and I'm sure others can speak to their experiences 20 years later fast forward they're talking about oh we might want to rename this one particular building because uh, he was a former president of the university but he was a supporter of eugenics what mm-hmm. <laughs> why you know why are we just now talking about this in 2020 it's almost like uh black lives matter and and all of the things that we have to do we have to act up and act out collectively in general before people start to think about changing things oh let's change the name of the washington redskins how long have people been asking for that kind of stuff yeah. right yeah. um so it was just ironic again in 2020 i've been out of school since the year 2000 um and felt out of place back then 
And now, oh, maybe we should think about <laughs> how we treat our students mm-hmm. of color and how to make sure that our campus is more diverse. You think so? Mm-hmm. Like it? Wh- <laughs> why now? Why not 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Um, and I think it really does um, have an impact on the quality of the, the person's experience on campus, whether they get out on time or at all, as far as graduating. Um, I was told to take a leave of absence when I said I needed help. I was, I need help. I'm pregnant. What do I do? Well, maybe you should just, you know, take a leave of absence. Why? Why are you trying to tell me to, (laughs) if I take a leave of absence, um, what is the likelihood that I'll come back and graduate? Very low. Right. Mm. Right. So right, why are right. you why aren't you helping me and helping me find resources instead of just telling me to take a leave of absence? In elementary mm. school, all my teachers were black. The mm. principal was black. Everybody okay. black. <laughs> okay. And I went to a private school. Mm. A, parochial, a parochial school is actually the more correct term. Mm. Junior high school, nice mixture, right, of black and others. Um, got to college, got to USC. I can remember one. And I, and the, the, the wonderful thing is I actually still talk to her today. Um, she actually lives down the street, wow. found out. I said, Hey, I think that's Dr. Uh-huh. Lewis <laughs> walking her dog. I'm that's like, awesome. wait a minute. Um, graduate school, zero, mm. zero black teachers. Mm. Um, mm. so, you know, to your point, Linda, really important to me that you, there is that diversity on um, these mm-hmm. these college campuses. And I talk to my undergrad students and when we have our little section on education as a public health issue, I also ask them that very same question. And there's always at least two or three that say, Nicole, you are my first black professor mm-hmm. and I, or black mm-hmm. teacher, period. And I'm like, are you serious? Um, and that's why I feel like it's my responsibility to give the black girl magic version of public mm-hmm. health um, and, and mm-hmm. weave in my work experience, which is amazing, but also my lived experience as a teen mom, for example. Like, hey, I, that happens in, in urban communities. Um, and I'm still here. She's here. She's 23 years old, but she was born eight weeks early, mm-hmm. you know, and we could be talking about her as an infant mortality statistic which would not be uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I try to make sure I weave all that in because again, a lot of our students don't have that perspective. They have not interacted with a black person at that extent ever. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad I'm here to give that to you because you're going to get it. <laughs> the full-fledged <laughs> yeah. experience um, for me. But yeah, that's a mm-hmm. huge question. And you you would be amazed at the the differences in response you get when you start to ask random people in your life, when did you have your first black teacher? You'd be amazed. In episode 35, released on October 13, 2020, Rishan and Praja from Memories Join us to talk about the importance of innovation in supporting caregivers of people living with dementia. In this clip, Rishan walks us through an exercise to contextualize the burden and the roller coaster of emotions caregivers often experience. I'll ask everyone here to close their eyes and everyone listening, feel free to do this with me, but close your eyes. It's 10 years down the line and you're coming home from one of many stressful days that's become a commonplace in your life. You realize the time, quietly open the door. You've been out for at least 12 hours. You gently approach the kitchen and open the fridge door. Covered in saran wrap is a plate on the middle shelf at eye level with a note, eat at 1 p.m. Besides that, a second plate, eat at 7 p.m. Neither touched, neither consumed. As you approach your living room with heaviness beginning to set on you, you see the TV on, remote on the floor and a puddle of yellow. Carpet stained, the odor is pungent. Today does not seem to have been a good day. You take off the TV and enter the hallway 
everyone's now on the same floor as you moved into a bungalow earlier this year for safety. First, you check on your daughter. The door is ajar, her light is on, but she's sound asleep. This is the first time you smiled all day. With a kiss on the forehead, you take off the light and close the door. But your father's door is wide open. Empty. You're too tired to panic, but you feel your heart racing. Praying for an easy solution, you approach the back of the house and feel a breeze. The patio door is open, and asleep on the chairs is your father in soiled pajamas. You feel relief, sadness, and pain all at once. The costs begin to pile up in your head. One, replace the carpet. Well, I'll need to work another shift. Two, I need to wake him, but he'll startle and wake up my daughter, perhaps. Three, he needs a bath, but I have to be at work in six hours. Do I have the energy to do this? It's all too much, but you realize it's not as much as what your father is living with. What he's living with is dementia, and as we mentioned earlier, every three seconds, someone in the world develops dementia. To put that in today's context, in the 20 seconds it took for you to wash your hands, six families received a diagnosis that changed their lives forever. Wow. Mm. I think that is a an example that is a little serious, but I think it does bring to play some of the different burdens and experiences that caregivers are facing. In episode 41, released on December 1st, 2020, Tim Davis, a high school teacher, mental health advocate, and author of the book titled Tripolar, the story of a bipolar triathlete, joins us to discuss his childhood trauma, struggles with addiction, and pathway to recovery. In this clip, Tim talks about how participating in triathlons, running, and meditation has served as an outlet for him to manage his bipolar diagnosis. I have bipolar disorder and I am a triathlete. I just like the term tripolar um, because uh, for me, tripolar was, you know, taking care of the mind, body and spirit. You know, like I said, the disease of a threefold nature. So there's the trinity of working on those three things to kind of become a holistic person. And in triathlon, you know, you swim, you bike, you run. So there's the, the trinity of those three disciplines, you know, to complete one type of race. And uh, so that's why I, I like the word tripolar because I'm a bipolar triathlete. So, yeah, and it just, uh, once I found triathlons, I really felt steady in my recovery. Um, it was like this one more thing that I needed to do for self-care so that I could really feel stable and, you know, lead a balanced life and a successful life because I've had many successes now and, and sobriety once I, and in recovery since I, I found, you know, exercising in any form really to, to manage my bipolar also. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me how um, running has been just a common thread in your life from, you know, even prior to, yeah, before having your bipolar diagnosis, before where you are in recovery now. And so what I noticed is that it seemed earlier on you were running from experiences, running from difficult emotions. But now I'm curious, what is your motivation? Do you feel that you're still running from something or is it more so running towards, like towards a goal, for example? Wow, you know, it really depends on uh, the day and my mood. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Generally, I'm running towards goals because for me, uh, when I train, if I don't have a race that I'm training for, I don't know what the point is to get out, put on my running Mm. shoes. So I've always have a a busy race schedule. I finish one race and I'm already thinking about the next race. Um, But I still, Mm -hmm. when I have painful things happen, like my brother died from alcoholism two years ago at age 30. Too. Sorry to hear I'm that. So sorry. Yeah, and when he died, I couldn't get to a meeting, but I could go run. Mm. And the first chance I got, I, I, I love 
mountain running, trail running. I'm, I'm an ultra runner and we have beautiful, you know, Angeles National Forest and Gabriel Mountains. I took off running and I did like 31 miles and I, all I brought was water. I didn't even bring, normally I bring like several cliff bars and I just didn't even pack food and I just wow. ran and ran and ran. And uh, I just felt so good to just get a long run in, you know, that took several hours. And uh, it's, mm-hmm. just, you know, so it's like there's this group out here called Riot, which stands for running as our therapy. And, you know, sometimes I love that. Yeah. Sometimes when life's problems get me down, be it, you know, stress at work or, you know, a, a different you know issue with, you know, one of my three kids, because raising kids can be stressful, as we all know. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I can go out for a run and it doesn't have to be a 30 mile run. It could be a three or five mile run, a short run. Mm. And, uh, you know, I can't think of the problem or solution right there when I'm at home and I'm stressed out about it, but I can go out and run and I can kind of clear my head and I feel kind of like I hit this meditative state and then I find the solution. And sometimes the solution is just have acceptance, you know, or just be loving and tolerant, you know, don't, you know, you know, it's just a lot of times I can go run and clear my head and figure out solutions to my problems you know so. that's powerful yeah you know and that brings me to what you said in in chapter 25 you said something like that you know you know that your um, running days are numbered and that yeah. your ultra running career has an expiration date yeah and you said but i'm glad that i found a, my tripolar way to deal with that too so what are some other ways um coping strategies um that you're gonna adopt when you're not able to be as active of a runner one day well, I've, I've recently started kayaking um, mm. and I figured, you know, I can do elliptical and, and uh, spin classes and, uh, you know, when it comes to it, I'll find even more low impact sports like aqua aerobics or whatever because I, I go to the gym and, well, when the gyms were open, I go to the gym and mm-hmm. I, some of my friends are in there because I have a lot of older friends that are in there doing the aqua aerobics and I'm just like, that's going to be me one day when, <laughs> when, my, <laughs> when my body can't tolerate so much of the heavy pounding that running, you know, entails. And that's fine, you know, and I figure I'll take up other hobbies. Maybe I'll write another book. Um, mm-hmm. I've started meditating more recently um, with another 12-step fellowship I'm going to. They highly recommend meditation. So I like sitting still for five or 10 minutes a day. You know, Meditation is a practice and I have a hard time sitting still. But if I can right. commit to 10 minutes, as this mm-hmm. program suggests, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people do it for hours. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know how they do it. Maybe I'll get there one day. In episode 45, released on December 22nd, 2020, Demi, Danielle, and Luam join us to talk about a report co-authored by Etio Public Health Consultants and the Public Health Insight. The report is titled, The Urgent Need for a Systems Thinking Approach to Address Anti-Black Racism in Ontario, a Call to Action for Decision Makers and Policymakers. This report highlights the ways in which the education system, social and economic system, justice system, and the healthcare system contribute to the disparities in black communities in Ontario. In this clip, we emphasize some of the ways in which people can join the fight against anti-black racism. I think just, you know, educate yourself on on these systemic issues, i.e. read this report. Um, once you're empowered with the knowledge from this report, take some action. Reach out to your local government, reach out to your provincial government um, and make yourself 
heard, voice your concerns, right? Like we need to kind of um, galvanize everyone to to voice these concerns so that they can be taken seriously and so that we can you know have a voice at the table to implement these changes right that's that's how other groups do it and that's what we need to do as well we need to come together as a community and really push to um, have our voices be heard and it starts with educating yourself and understanding how these systems do oppress you as well right because some people may not understand the inherent um you know biases and and I was not aware of the healthcare instances and and it, it took me aback when I was understanding that you know through the educational process a lot of the things that doctors learn um, when they're going through medical school is that there's you know inherently racist teachings in terms of like how to treat patients um, so things like that are very important for I think people to be um, knowledgeable about and then take that action. Uh, I'll hop in next. Um, coming as a, a person of South Asian descent and obviously darker skin, um, my message would be to, even if you're not black, be very aware of how your culture may be complicit in anti-black racism. So I, what was really eye-opening to me in my culture was there was always this talk of being the model minority. You know, people with lighter skin are favorable. You know, you'll have more success in life, change your name, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of um, parallels there. So be aware of it, educate yourself, educate individuals in your community, you know, um, your older family members who may not be as educated, read this report. And as Danielle said, reach out to the levers within the governance of your community or within your local area to advocate for these things that we mentioned in this report, because they are important. And, you know, we are all affected by them in some way. Yeah, like a big thing is like, obviously so much work has been put into this. Um, their facts, um, backing all these things up. Um, I guess a big difference with this one is, like we said, there are actionable steps to see, like someone mentioned earlier, see what step you can contribute to, um, see how you can bring or garner conversation about these steps. Um, because like there, this day, in this day and age, uh, being an ally looks like different things. Um, but just figuring out what being a good ally um, looks like for you um, is a big um, aspect of this. And there are many um, areas we touched on. So definitely at least one should like pertain to your speak to you. Um, so just like trying to figure mm. out which one that is and try and be a contributor to the um, change we're seeking or the progress we're trying to achieve. I would call on institutions and systems to take uh, greater accountability, um, to be more conscious of how their systems might be perpetuating racist ideologies or harming uh, black communities and other uh, communities of color, indigenous communities as well, um, and really dissecting the areas in which they find um, the flaws in their system and actually working towards rebuilding it. it it's more than just identifying the problem. It's working towards a solution and not working towards a solution alone because there's so many community organizations, black community organizations specifically that can assist and aid in, in helping institutions to find viable solutions. Um, and yeah, just bring in those community members to the table, ask them what their needs are and how they can make the most impactful change. My call to action would be, um, you know, the issue of racism is, I find it, especially with um, you know, the current messaging that we see, it's, it's 
it's often very closely connected with you know um, the justice system but i really encourage um, individuals from non-traditional um, fields such as public health education um, urban planning whatever it is to find how this issue fits in with your field and i guess look to see how from that from that perspective you're able to contribute to the change because you know we need to have innovative solutions we need to have out outside of the box um i guess ideas and just thinkers to kind of really come together because realistically racism is a whole of society um issue and we need to really just i don't know as we talk about so much in public health multi-sectoral interdisciplinary break down the barriers break down the walls and silos and just work together to tackle this this problem especially the individuals who tip or the fields who typically aren't brought into the discussion at an individual level we're learning more about a lot of different terms, allyship, performance allyship, and this and that. And everyone knows that I'm not a big fan of, of a lot of different terminology because it's a very monumental challenge that we have in front of us. And if you look too far ahead, you might get a little paralyzed about what you could do. So each one of us can kind of implement new ways of thinking in our life to kind of be aware, be more reflective of what the situation is. And um, small change is good too. Um, you don't have to be on the front lines of a protest to, to sh- you don't need to show anyone um you know if you are doing the work you don't need to prove it to anyone that you are doing the work um you could start small like in your workplace maybe you notice that you know hey boss we don't have a lot of diversity in the workplace you know it could be something small like that you don't have to uh, be on the front lines to change the world so you can change the world by starting in your own workplace your own communities your own institutions and then collectively those changes will have a big impact. In episode 46, released on December 29, 2020, our former classmates, Sam and Janelle, join us to reflect on our MPH journeys and what we've learned from an early career. In this clip, Sam and Janelle reflect on their MPH journey, areas of interest, and what they've learned from their early career. Policy, for sure, because that's where like I started you know, my thinking of going into public health, right? Because I started thinking upstream already. And that's where, you know, my statement of intent towards the schools that I applied to was like, okay, like, where can I go from here to communicate and to help lower the barriers uh, to accessing mm-hmm. health? Um, so policy, yeah, of course, I'm in research right now. So like epidemiology and biostats are like integrated <laughs> everywhere, you know? So it's, Shout it's out to amazing. Dr. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's amazing to see how, you know, what we've learned is put into play now, now that we are out in the Mm -hmm. world making a difference, right? So I think, yeah, I think epidemiology, um, I did my internship at the the Canadian Red Cross, and I think global health was also like a big passion of mine and is still a big passion of mine. To be completely honest, I think I went into our program with a fairly narrow understanding of what public health entailed. Um, As an undergrad student in food and nutrition, I was involved with a lot of health promotion volunteering, and I also had the opportunity to work as a student health promoter for a local community health center. And I guess in my mind, 
you know, this was what public health was. You know, those people that make the PSAs, they go to schools and do talks and they put up posters about healthy eating and exercising and that kind of thing. And it was something that I really enjoyed and really loved back in undergrad. So it's like, hey, I'm going to do my master's in this. <laughs> um, yeah, but like what everyone said, what... Um, I've kind of come to learn through our program is that um, and also just seeing what has you know transpired throughout this year and how COVID-19 has really flipped the world on its head in a way we can see that public health is connected to all functions and sectors of society and yeah like LaShawn said that's what I really love about this field as well it's um we can see how all the areas of interest are so vast, but they're all interrelated. And I think there's real, like a lot of potential to make huge strides in the health and well-being of communities if public health considerations are made a priority. This upstream thinking, like Janelle said. Um, currently, I guess what I'm most interested in is the idea of isolation and how that impacts overall health. Um, now that I'm fully immersed in long-term care, I'm really seeing um, these residents living day-to-day, separated from their loved ones. And then, you know, in some most situations, I guess, adding on a layer of cognitive decline where they can't necessarily remember the loved ones in their lives. Um, from a dietitian's perspective, I certainly see that it has a negative effect on their intakes and it leads to a rapid deterioration in their health as well. So definitely in the long-term care setting, I guess it's a really big struggle right now between managing the resident's safety from the very real threat of COVID on one hand and then on the other still figuring out a way to provide care that's compassionate and conducive to their quality of life. So yeah, that's what's been on my mind lately in my area of interest. I hope you enjoyed listening to us share some of our favorite moments and I encourage you to check out episodes you might have missed. And just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we will be sharing some more exciting updates over the next few weeks as we look to continually create new and inspiring content just for you. Be sure to follow us on our social media and make sure you don't miss out on any surprises.